please be aware that this is for professional investors only. Hello, good morning. It's time for your morning espresso. Today is Wednesday, the 17th of February, 2021. Now, as usual, we will have simultaneous translations to those who are watching live. So just click below, select your language and off you go. We also have the Q&A button. So if you have questions along the way, you can select that and pop your questions in there. In your language, it's no problem, and we'll translate them and we will get back to you. Alternatively, you can always send emails to Nordea Funds at nordea.com. Right, in time honored fashion, we are going to start today's session with a macro update. And for that, I am joined by Sebastian Gali, our senior macro strategist. Good morning, Sebastian. Are you there? Good morning. Hi, how's it going? It's going very fine. It's uh, nice and beautiful outside. It's a sunny, cold day, isn't it, out there? Right. So um, we just heard a few days ago that Donald Trump has been uh, acquitted uh, by the U.S. Senate. I don't think that was any huge surprise, but anyway, a bit of drama along the way. Um, but I wondered what you feel are the implications. You know, how is this going to play out now in the U.S.? Well, if we focus on the situation, needed about two-third majority to be able to um, convict him of, uh, of the crime that he was accused of. But what we're seeing is that they were unable to get more than seven senators, which means that the Donald Trump is essentially at the core of the Republican Party, probably will put his family and loyalists uh, to replace people who have opposed him. And that means a run in uh, four years' time is uh, is increasingly likely. But it also means that from the point of view of the Democrats, given the razor-thin majority that they had uh, getting elected on the presidential side, that they need to do something and do something quick. That means a large need to get that fiscal package of $1.9 trillion through. Uh, also the need, if they can, to get information structure through because they might need the Republicans. And with the Republicans heavily under Trump, uh, it might be uh, less likely. And going, getting all of these fiscal packages, all this monetary policy to boost the economy, to reach basically low-income people, those which are disenfranchised from the Democrats and from society in general, uh, and to, to get a victory, but also means, of course, a conflict for China. Yeah, that's a good point, because as you said, you know, there's a lot of things that the Democrats need to do fairly quickly. And obviously, Joe Biden, as soon as he came into power, started signing uh, executive orders left, right and center. Um, but one of those, the one that you just mentioned at the end there is, is China. And, you know, China have been, you know, keeping the renminbi nicer, you know, uh, under pressure and, and, you know, keeping the price of that low. Uh, that's something that, that Joe Biden and the Democratic Party need to address. How are they going to do that? How are they, how's this going to play out? 
Well, the, the way to look at it is uh, nice people who talk very softly sometimes carry very big sticks. And I think it is the case uh, of the of the Democrats. And they probably will wait two, three months to see what the Chinese are doing in terms of policy, uh, in, in terms of uh, what they're willing to, to extend to the United States. Um, and especially looking at the currency, as you were pointing out, it's been basically trading in a range. Uh, they've been officially pushing against any form of appreciation of the currency. Uh, and, and that's not acceptable to the United States because it is a currency which is deeply underappreciated. It's one of the reasons why most of the manufacturing in the world is actually based in uh, in China. And that is no longer acceptable. They need these jobs in the United States, not necessarily exactly the same job as some of these jobs, uh, to, to come back to the US and this pressure coming from the competition uh, from China to lessen. And we've seen that during the crisis when there was a need for goods, it all came from China. All the working from home stuff, all our chairs, all our screens, many of them are, are coming from from china so it, it if they don't let the currency appreciate you can expect that uh over the next uh, few months uh probably uh, my guess is about three months uh they will declare the china to be a currency manipulator in the u.s treasury report uh, that will does not trigger automatic consequences but there will be consequences and uh, probably trade tariffs and the likes and you're looking back to a scenario very similar to uh, what you had under the trump administration um which is unfortunate but uh, it is very likely yeah, I guess it's about getting these jobs, these lower paid jobs that are in that center belt in America, getting those back. Uh, not dissimilar from Donald Trump's policy, perhaps they go about it in a slightly different way. But slowly, slowly, they're going to take it easy at first and uh, the gloves come off maybe a bit later. Yeah, I think that's a right description. It's, uh, it's first observe, second act. Yeah. Great. So we have a summary slide. Maybe we can just quickly whip through this. Um, as we said before, um, you know, Donald Trump will maintain um, this central position within the Republican Party. Uh, the fact that he hasn't been impeached obviously clears the way for that. And uh, this generates an extra sense of urgency for the Democratic Party to uh, to get traction with with his voter base. Yeah, and I think that's it's as, as clear as they, they need to do it and they need to start now. And they have started, but it's going to be a long haul. Yeah. And then regarding China, you know, confrontation is, you know, almost a given. And, you know, perhaps this is an opportunity to, to buy in at this stage. Yeah, I think you, you should expect volatility, but if with an economy growing at 8% probably in China, uh, not only this year, but next year, uh, it's a fantastic opportunity. And that means, uh, of course, you're long and it's going to hurt, but uh, it, it just offers better, better buying levels uh, going forward. Great. Well, thank you very much, Sebastian, uh, for your time this morning and uh, look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you so much. So. Now we move on to the main section and today I'm joined by Michaela Zirova. Michaela, those of you that are regular viewers of Morning Espresso will know is our head of ESG products and research. Hello, Michaela. Good morning, Paul. <laughs> you're always full of beans. You're always like, in the morning, <laughs> you're sort of super awake. What, what is it? What's the secret? Uh, coffee black, uh, ideally from a French press, double, uh, double the normal quantity. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it there for the coffee drinkers amongst us. Um, I'm not that fussy about what sort of beans. <laughs> <laughs> 
So today, obviously, we're here to talk about uh, ESG. And I thought I'd start with a really easy question because here at Morning Espresso, we're not afraid to ask the easy questions. <laughs> um, the first question I had for you is, is, you know, what actually is an ESG rating? Because we're always talking about ESG ratings, but what does that actually mean for you? Well, the way we hope our ESG ratings to work is that they provide a measure of the ESG profile of the company. Note that I'm not saying a measure of ESG risk. Note that I'm not also saying an, uh, a measure of opportunity. Ideally, uh, this should show you where the company sits regarding its complete profile on an absolute scale. Now, you will say that's an awful lot of information to pack into a scale that goes from A to C. Uh, and also has three measures of tendency. Uh, that's quite true. We are looking uh, about opportunities to make that, maybe to add a few more, not just to the scale. And we are also seeing uh, some requirements on our uh, internal research process uh, that are placed uh, by emerging regulation. So certainly this is not set in stone, but what we hope to describe with our ESG rating is how does the ESG profile of the company look like on an absolute scale? Mm. I mean, I, I guess it's inevitable that you're going to get more and more granular as time goes on. We've, we've seen it with our clients actually going into sort of global stars and now they're starting to get into the regional stars um, as time goes on and, and you build experience. I, I would expect that to be a normal sort of progression. That probably is just the way things go, Paul, that, that could very well be that. Perhaps here's also a, a good time to also say a little bit uh, about our measures of tendency. They are three, uh, positive, flat and neutral, basically uh, roughly describing whether companies getting better, staying the same or getting worse. Mm -hmm. And we have a lot of application for us for our ESG ratings. So for the stars products, they can be used to determine uh, an investability threshold. They can be used to compare a company, obviously, versus its peers or versus the sector overall. We need them to create uh, an ESG profile of a portfolio. We need them for our reporting and we need them also to identify engagement candidates. One uh, absolute mainstay of what we do uh, that is the primary lens through which we view a company. And if you look at what the distribution looks right now, perhaps unsurprisingly, uh, it's sort of a normal distribution with fat tails. So mm -hmm. we have uh, a lot of uh, clustering around, around your average B, uh, as is perhaps to be expected. Uh, and we have maybe 15 to 20% in each, in each tail. So what we've seen happening uh, as we started uh, paying a little bit more attention to Paris alignment and to the effect of that on business models, we've had uh, a bit of movement towards the sea tail. So we've had a few uh, uh, extra percentage points there from that. But uh, in general, the way it looks when you look at our ratings distribution globally, uh, that's what it looks like normal distribution with quite a bit in the tails. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And do you perhaps have an example for us that uh, that you could share? Sure. Uh, actually, <laughs> I have a I have a nice slide there that allows a very look, very good look under the hood. Yeah. 
uh, that's a Chinese company, uh, and this we don't really use that scorecard anymore. Uh, quite a few things have happened since that was created, but we decided to keep the slide because it allows us uh, to demonstrate in a very handy way to people what do we do and what happens to a company when it lands on our desks and okay. what are the elements that go into the rating. Yeah. So let me direct your attention to the right hand side where you have the ESG scorecard and you will see that it's separated into five pillars uh, you've got your business model corporate governance business ethics environment and social mm -hmm. you will see that you we have a score for each of these pillars you will see that that has uh, that these pillars have different weights to the final score and you will also see that's basically your very typical b maybe slightly more interesting than usual because it's a very positive uh, uh, business model in a market uh, that historically has been uh, exposed to quite a bit of uh, local risk to corporate governance. That's a Chinese uh, software provider which creates resource efficiency software for the construction industry. So here, the two fixed weights in our model, uh, them I kind of already mentioned. One is business model, 30%, corporate governance 10%. We always look at that. It's important to know how a company makes its money and whether that's in somehow in some way po uh, positively exposed to overall sustainability goals. What are mm. those? We've spoken about these before, the sustainable development goals. And here we like uh, uh, resource efficiency. So these type of models normally score pretty well in our scorecard. Corporate governance, you will see a lot of issues that can be relevant there, quite a long list, some of them highlighted in red. Those are the bits where we think the company uh, has weaknesses. Same, same story with business ethics and uh, also same story with environmental and social, except that there you see bits highlighted in green. These are the things that the company does well. Uh, and two things are important to note here. The weights that we have per pillar, they are variable, so they can vary per sector. Uh, same with the list of issues, that's also dynamic and can be different depending on what sector the company is in. And what determines what ends up on this scorecard is a concept called materiality. So mm -hmm. we want to look only at things that matter. And what matters is what will affect the financial performance of the company from an ESG perspective and what is likely to be important to its uh, 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 stakeholders, which is a broader group than the shareholders alone. Yeah. Uh, our guide for materiality, that's SASBI. And we've taken, uh, that's uh, uh, a body called the Sustainable Accounting Standards Board. And th those chaps are very useful because this is the best guide we have and the best agreement we have on how is sustainability to be accounted for. Uh, very interesting things happening in that space also on the European side, but that's a conversation for another day. For now, uh, uh, this, is, this is the basic structure of our ratings. So I, I guess a, an obvious question perhaps, but one that's worth asking is, you know, maybe you'll disagree with me on this, but what we're seeing is is within the industry, I think, is people are moving towards the MSCI ratings, uh, ESG ratings. And um, the question, I guess, is, you know, why is it that we spend all of this time and energy and effort to produce our own ESG ratings? Why don't we just use, you know, an external provider? 
two reasons. Uh, first one for us, MSCI is in the end one input provider among many. Um, we do not think that basically declaring one rating methodology, the uh, baseline of our efforts uh, gives us enough accuracy. So the main use that we have for MSCI is that they have a, a very large, uh, very good data set with a lot of data points that we populate uh, under the issues that we declare material. So very important here, MSCI has very good data, but it does not have a measure of materiality. And that structure we need to add on ourselves. Mm -hmm. Another thing, uh, there are several rating providers in the market. And as is very well documented, documented, the correlation of their findings is relatively low. So while MSCI are the main input that we use, we also use others, uh, ISS ERCOM and ISS ethics among that. Mm -hmm. And lastly, there are certain things that uh, you kind of need specialist data providers for. Um, chief among those impact measurement, very exciting area with very specific problems. Reputational risk measurement, uh, which is only partially captured by MSCI and its like. Uh, then we need a little bit more variety when it comes to climate related data sets. Uh, what MSCI has provides a good snapshot, but if you want to capture a transition, you need additional inputs. And last but not least, spe specialist solutions to respond to uh, basically EU regulations such as the taxonomy and such as uh, uh, the, sustain the sustainable finance disclosure regulation. Yeah. So we do need to be aware of all of these uh, needs. We need to have uh, in-house something syncretic that it's able to have a broad application. That is the first part of the, the, que uh, the question. Mm -hmm. The second part, uh, MSCI, to my mind at least, it's possible to have a very good conversation about it, but to my mind, if you want to use MSCI only, then you likely are running a passive product. For active managers, this is not very suitable. And the reason for that is uh, that if you do have a, a pre predominantly bottom-up research process and tend to do a lot of homework on your companies, you will inevitably, inevitably have disagreements with MSCI, know the company in more detail, have better insights, or outright disagree with their view on what's important or not important on a company. Mm. So it's a, very, a much more easier fit for a, a, a top-down passive product with an ESG tilt uh, than it would be for a, a something more granular. So for the sorts of products that we have, relying on only one uh, research provider and on only one data set would essentially not give us the sort of granularity that we want and it won't touch on all the questions that we have. Right. So to create these ESG ratings, we use two methodologies. In fact, we use one which is you know, very much a, a manual process. And then we have uh, an algorithm actually that, that you know, it's, a, it's an algorithm that generates an ESG rating. And I just wondered if you could explain to us, you know, how we use those two, um, what the differences is and, and how they get integrated. 
Sure. I think I had actually chosen a company that I hope most people will know, McDonald's, for that one. Yeah, so maybe we can have a... Uh, <laughs> uh, some people have heard of it, uh, I yeah, hear. Yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, this basically gives you a little bit of output from uh, our algorithm. And uh, one thing, one is manual, one is uh, automated, but we, one thing that's very important is that both the manual and the automated process use the same measure uh, of materiality, namely SASB, and they use the same basic structure, except that the model obviously comes up and suggests a rating, whereas, uh, if you are in the manual process, you can overrule each and every part of the rating as you see fit based on your judgment, your experiences with the company, your best guess, uh, everything that that uh, is inside of uh, your expertise as an analyst and that we haven't managed to automate yet. Yeah. Uh, and I will say here that I do believe that a good algorithm and a good analyst together work better than either of the two in isolation. Uh, and also, we tend to feed a lot of our expertise back into the model and to backtest it at least once a year so that we have a reasonably good alignment between our worldview and the platform's worldview. It's become, over the last two years, continuously a better and more reliable tool. So let's see what we have here. Uh, we have a very, very controversial company that nonetheless has, in some of its practices, uh, pretty solid scores. Mm -hmm. uh, our model suggests an outright C. MSCI sees them as double B, which is pretty low, but not, not outright junk. Let's put it that way. So here you have an <laughs> interesting... Yeah, uh, <laughs> pardon the pun, pardon the pun. You, you notice what I did there. <laughs> uh, so basically our model uh, and MSCI are in outright disagreement here because uh, he, our platform suggests uh, a very high confidence, uninvestable C and neutral trend. So not getting any better, not, not going anywhere. And one, and recently we had to ask ourselves the question, do we agree with the platform or do we agree with MSCI? Because we had to reconcile those two scores and manually assign a final analyst score to that. And the, the question that we asked ourselves there, the two main ones were, one was related to the business model. I think I actually have a slide on that, very likely the next one. <laughs> yeah, precisely. Uh, uh, <clears throat> let's, let's spend a little bit of time here because uh, this is really about the question, if you're making fast food, can you be sustainable? And on the right-hand side, you're seeing the distribution in the sector and you can see that uh, the way the, the restaurant sector relates to the SDG, uh, they are obstructive to a larger extent, such as McDonald's, or to a smaller extent, such as, well, other listed uh, leisure and restaurant companies. It's mm. not that it's not possible to make a sustainable uh, restaurant uh, uh, and to make a sustainable restaurant chain. It's just that according to the data that we currently have, nobody seems to have quite done it yet. <laughs> Otherwise, it would have popped up on the distribution. Yeah. And obviously, McDonald's is also very exposed to sustainability macro trends and not in a good way. So they can do quite a bit about introducing alternative proteins uh, to, to their food, and they can make some strides in sustainable sourcing. 
uh, but uh, in the end, if the consumer turns away from 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 fast food and looks for more local, more healthy, more sustainable solutions, it is not likely that McDonald's will emerge as the winner. So if you look at where the sustainability trends are going and where McDonald's business it is, it's, a, it's in a defensive position. It's not a natural winner at all. Mm. Uh, then you also uh, have to ask yourself, uh, is is the revenue going to survive how how resilient that is you can have a very big conversation about that and probably different developments in different markets but it's not it's not a straightforward call it's a very big question mark mm. and when it comes to the impact footprint just on account of its scale it is enormous mm. and this can have a justification if you see all right this is the smallest possible impact footprint for this type of business. So they should be running lots of restaurants because they do it uh, better than anyone in the world. That could be your argument, but that's not what we see in practice. We don't, basically what we see is uh, an impact footprint that is still strictly in the, in the significant obstruction category. Mm -hmm. Let's see what, if you like, what else we looked at when we were uh, looking at McDonald's, I think we have a bit more on the next slide. So the next thing that we looked at were controversies and it might not be fair, but McDonald's, for McDonald's, the way the, the company handles its reputation is always going to be part of the business case. Yeah. Uh, and the history of the brand has become a little bit of a lightning rod for all sorts of controversies. So it's, it's being used very much as, as shorthand for everything that's very much not sustainable in the world of food production. Mm. And we dove quite deeply there because we are not afraid of controversy and we are not afraid to take the opposing view. But we want to know, um, first of all, if we are contrarian, can we back it up? And second of all, in which direction is, is this going? And what we found there actually wasn't really very good for us. Because when you look at the sourcing, the company had actually made some progress, but it had uh, acquired a new hotspot, namely dis uh, discrimination and uh, harassment related pro uh, problems. And at the highest levels of the company, to the point that you have to ask yourself, what's wrong with the, with the corporate culture? Yeah. So there's been very, very significant uh, uh, negative news flow from there. One fired CEO as well in 2019 yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and several class actions. And at that point, you have to ask yourself, OK, is it worth the risk having that company in a sustainable product? Because mind you, this is one of these cases that you will always have to explain, always be on top of and always engage with the company. To, to make sure you're not missing something important because they're always going to attract negative publicity. Mm. So for a company that's not a natural winner in the, on sustainability macro trends, that's more in a defensive position when it comes to sustainability related uh, uh, developments and that also attracts that much negative publicity. I mean, it's not worth it. No. It's not worth it. In the end, we confirmed the CEO of our pl platform and uh, we kind of decided we weren't loving it. 
it's possible to see it in a different way. And uh, it's one of these cases where I can imagine that if ever social distancing ends and I get to uh, actually argue with uh, other EHG analysts face to face again, we could probably have a good, uh, a really good argument about that. But our present view there, we very much went with our platform and not with MSCI. Yeah. And uh, you and I were on a client call a, a couple of weeks ago. We were talking about McDonald's at, at the time. And you were saying that some analysts see it not as a restaurant business necessarily, but more as a property business, because, of course, McDonald's is a franchise and own a lot of property. And, and that creates a discrepancy as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you can you, you can influence a lot of the risk exposure de uh, uh, depending on whether you say actually what they really do is they rent out properties uh, to all of these guys who then sell burgers in them and that's the business exactly. model. Yes. Yeah. But uh, to my mind that is a bit of a cop out. We discussed it at length within the team and uh, uh, ultimately the financial risk exposure might be closer to uh, that of a real estate company but on the ESG side the riskiness is definitely not the same uh, as you would with a real estate company uh, and the reason for that is that the supply chain is still operated in a very centralized way uh, by McDonald's and the franchisees uh, face quite a few limitations in what they can and cannot do uh, and they all come from the parent company. So uh, you might be able, I think, to, to run that argument on the financial side, but on the ESG side, it's a lot less credible. <laughs> Convince me. <laughs> uh, that, that, that's very good to hear, Paul. <laughs> I like to start the day uh, by convincing somebody. <laughs> that coffee was worth it. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Great. Well, normally we would have um, a, you know, a slide with the key takeaways, but I think there's one key takeaway from all of this. And that is that as an active manager, you have to be active when it comes to ESG, uh, you know, and taking the MSCI just, it's not enough. Uh, if you want to be active in this space, then you have to do your own research. Do you think that's a, a fair summary of the discussion this morning? I think so, yes. And you have to look at a wide variety of data and you have to decide what is important to you. So I think as an active manager, you need, you need two main things, a wide base of sources and a measure of materiality to help you structure your information. And uh, that I would think it stands to reason that you would be a more high, uh, a more high needs uh, uh, when it comes to information and when it comes to structure compared to a passive product because you actually need to make a lot of individual decisions. And we do hope that the kind of ratings that we have are helpful in making that kind of decision and we want to develop them further to make them even more helpful. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, uh, Michaela. Next week, on Wednesday, the 24th of February, I will be joined by Juliana Hansfaden. Now, as you know, she is the lead portfolio manager of both our Emerging Stars and Asia Stars Equity Strategies. So she will be giving us an update on both of those uh, funds. So please do join us for that. In the meantime, as ever, you can go and visit our Stay Alert website. You'll find that at nordia.lu. And there we have all of the previous interviews that we've done. We've transformed those into podcasts, if you would rather listen to them as podcasts. And of course, we have supporting documents there as well. Also, 
uh, our new website, uh, nordiaassetmanagement.com. Well worth a visit. Plenty of resources there for you as well. That's it for this week. I'll see you next Wednesday.